Is God real? Are the stories in the Bible true? I need answers. Welcome to A Closer Look with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. I'm Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh, and I'm very happy that you chose to spend the next hour with us as we delve into the study of God's Word. We can't do what we don't know. Here at Shiloh, we want to spend time studying the Word so that we can rightly apply the Word to our daily living and make a difference in our community and in our world for Jesus Christ. Won't you join us now for a closer look into God's Word? We start a new Bible study today. I want us to look at 1 Samuel chapter 1. I was just saying to uh, Brother Jordan, and somebody's going to say, I, I hear y'all always, y'all didn't, I, you haven't done 1 Samuel with me. You did 1 Samuel in Sunday school, and not, not, not with me, and you're jumping the gun, because I'm going to tell you that what you're going to hear today, if you were in Sunday school, a lot of it is going to be repetitive. Uh, but we are starting a new Bible study series. Uh, I was just saying to Brother Vernon Jordan not too long ago uh, that when you get down to this time of the year, uh, you're trying to uh, uncover things that you have not done before. And I've never done a Bible study on Samuel. I, I've only done Bible studies where Samuel is mentioned in relationship to other people. Samuel in relationship to King Saul, Samuel in relationship uh, to David. But we have never done, I have never led a Bible study on the life of Samuel. And so we're going to dig in and we're going to see whether we have anything in there that's worth looking at. I think that we might find a few good things. Once again, for those of you who go to Sunday school and have already said, yeah, we just talked about Samuel the other day. Yes, you did just talk about Samuel the other day in Sunday school, but not with me. And that's a good thing because that tells me that y'all went to Sunday school. So that's very good. I'm happy and proud of all of you for going to Sunday school. So today it's going to be kind of a refresher, a rehearsal of what you heard uh, in Sunday school. I'm sure uh, that you got a very thorough lesson then. So uh, I apologize for the repeat that you get this time. But you have to start somewhere. And we're going to start with where the Bible starts with Samuel. And so our lesson, while we're calling this uh, Samuel, and, 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 and when you get your notes, it'll say Samuel colon his birth. We're really not dealing with Samuel today. We're dealing with Samuel's mother today. We're dealing with the faith of his mother, Hannah, and, and how Samuel comes to be. And I find that it's a powerful story as, as we move into it. As we start, let's consider the fact that there are several aspects to the Samuel story that are worth looking at. I want to list about eight or nine things that, that, that I think are important as an overview, and then we'll get into the verses uh, of 1 Samuel chapter 1. Number one, we want to consider the miraculous nature of his birth. The Bible talks about uh, certain births as being significant, particularly in light of the fact that uh, these are births that were considered to be something that could not happen 
because it had not happened up to that point. What's the very first thing that said in 1 Samuel chapter 1 with regard to Hannah? That God had closed her womb. We read that in a few other places. For example, Abram's wife, Sarah, for a long time could not have children because God had closed her womb. Rachel could not have children for a long time because God had closed her womb. So this is not the only place where that happens, but it does uh, uh, highlight the fact that the birth of Samuel goes against the grain of perceived uh, thoughts and, and, and ideas around Hannah and her life. And we're going to get into that when we get into chapter one. But it shows that God can do anything under any circumstance. Number two, we need to consider what Samuel's name means. Literally, it means God has heard. And I find it interesting, we're going to see it when we get to, to the end of the chapter. In most cases, who names the children? The father. In our tradition, mom names, well, depends on, on your family. I better be careful how I say that because I wasn't named by my mom. I was named by my daddy. My brother was named by my mama. My sister was named by my mama, but I was named by my daddy. Uh, so it depends on who's in charge at that moment. Uh, 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 but but, but in, in, in the Bible, most children are named by the father. And yet when it comes to Samuel, Samuel was not named by his father. The scripture clearly says that Samuel was named by his mother. In fact, Elkanah plays a very small role in this thing all together. And the role that he plays is, 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 is a poor one, uh, to say the least. Because what, what Elkanah essentially says to Hannah is, you ought to be happy because you got me. Don't worry about the fact that you ain't got no baby. You, you ought to be just happy that you got me. And I'm going to take good care of you. Amen. Number three, Samuel is a Levite, and he may have also been an Ephraimite. We have to remember that this was at a time before Israel was a nation. Israel was a confederation of tribes. If you read 1 Samuel, uh, you, you see that his father, uh, Elkanah, was from the tribe of Levi, but he was living at that time in the land of the Ephraimites, which lead us to, to perhaps believe that his mother Hannah was an Ephraimite. Uh, he begins his ministry as a Levite, as a priest, and a priest, by definition, is the designated intercessor between God and his people. He begins his ministry as the chief priest of the tabernacle, 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. He also makes sacrifices on behalf of the people and offers intercessory prayers to God for them. So he fulfills a priestly role in his ministry. But that's not all he does because number four tells us that Samuel is also the last judge. 
In the book of Judges, there are 12 individuals who are listed as judges. But that is not an exhaustive list. First Samuel tells us that there were at least two more judges. Eli, who Samuel is given to after he is born, when Hannah brings him in and offers him to Eli because she wanted to keep the promise that she made to God, and Samuel himself. And after Samuel, Israel becomes led by kings, which leads us to number five. Samuel is responsible for anointing the first two kings of Israel. He anoints Saul and he anoints David. When the people demand a national king, God directs Samuel to anoint Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. And later when Saul proves to be a disappointment, God sends Samuel to a man by the name of Jesse and he anoints Jesse's youngest son to be the king who succeeds Saul to Israel's throne. So Samuel is a Levite, which means he was a priest. Samuel is the last of the judges and Samuel is the one who anoints the first two kings of Israel. You're starting to see that there's some significance to Samuel's life. That leads us to number six. Samuel is listed as being among the first prophets. And a prophet is different from a priest. A priest intercedes on behalf of God before the people and intercedes on behalf of the people before God. He's a mediator. He carries messages back and forth. A prophet's job is different. A prophet speaks on behalf of God. A prophet's role is simple. Thus saith the Lord. This is what God wants you to know. He is not listed as the first prophet of the Bible. That title belongs to Moses. But he is listed in the order of prophets. 1 Samuel chapter 19, verse 20. Number seven, Samuel, in addition to being a priest, in, in addition to being a judge, in addition to being the anointer of the kings of Israel, and in addition to being a prophet, was also a lifelong Nazarite. And if you were with us when we were discussing uh, Samson and Samson's life, we, we, we told you that there are certain things about being a Nazarite that are important. Nazarite vows are not always or exclusively lifetime vows. People take Nazarite vows or took Nazarite vows for a period of time. But in the case of Samson, it was to be a lifetime commitment. And in the case of Samuel, it was considered to be a lifetime commitment. We're going to talk about what it means to be a Nazarite as we move a little bit further. Samuel is also remembered, number eight, he is also remembered for his strong prayer life. The 99th Psalm, verse 6, ranks him with Moses and Aaron 
as one who called upon the Lord powerfully in prayer. And anytime you're in the same ranking with Moses, you're in good company. The strongest people of the, uh, uh, of the Old Testament, Old Testament characters, a whole lot of Old Testament characters, the strongest people of the Old Testament are Moses, David, and Elijah. If you're ranked up there with any one of them, what is it y'all used to say? You, you in high cotton. You, you, you're ranked up there with, with a pretty good group of fellows. When Jesus is transfigured, who, who is Jesus seen with? He's seen with Moses on one side and Elijah on the other. When, when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness by Satan, the three temptations are not random. Each temptation is a, a, a direct relation to one of these three individuals, to Moses, to David, to Elijah. So for Samuel to be ranked in any way with Moses, or Elijah or David is considered to be a high, high thing. So these are just certain things that we should know about Samuel as we move into the study. As we said, today we're not really talking about Samuel, we're talking about his mother and the faith of his mother and what she had to put up with uh, in order to bring Samuel into the world. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 1. There once was a man who lived in Ramathane. He was descended from the old Zuth family in the Ephraim Hills. His name was Elkanah. He was connected with the Zuths from Ephraim, though his father Jehoram, his grandfather, I'm sorry, through his father Jehoram, and his grandfather Elihu, and his great-grandfather Tohu. He had two wives. The first was Hannah. The second was Penina. Penina had children. Hannah did not. Every year, this man went from his hometown up to Shiloh to worship and offer a sacrifice to God of the angel armies. Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, served as the priests of God there. When Elkanah sacrificed, he passed helpings from the sacrificial meal around to his wife, Penana, Penina, and all her children. But he always gave an especially generous helping to Hannah because he loved her so much and because God had not given her children. But her rival wife taunted her cruelly, rubbing it in and never letting her forget that God had not given her children. This went on year after year. Every time she went to the sanctuary of God, she could expect to be taunted. Hannah was reduced to tears and had no appetite. Her husband Elkanah said, oh Hannah, why are you crying? Why aren't you eating? And why are you so upset? Am I not of more worth to you than 10 sons? I can answer that question, no, <laughs> you're not. Let's talk about this because these are the three characters, well, well, we're gonna, we're gonna be, they mentioned Eli here, Eli's gonna figure a little bit more prominently as we move on. There are certain characters that Hannah has to deal with. And from a theological perspective, these characters represent a larger force that you and I have to deal with in our everyday lives. First, there is Penina. And Penina 
represents the world. Penina is a worldly person. Penina acts like worldly folk act. And if you don't know how worldly folk act, worldly folk think more of themselves than they do of anybody else. And they think about how important it is that they win, that they prevail over anyone else. Our society is wrapped around a culture of competition. Can't get around it. I know that some people don't like the fact that there's competition. Well, I don't know what, what planet you plan on living on. There's always going to be some form of competition that exists in this world. But the problem is the culture of our society says that if you don't come in first, you don't matter. And that's what Penina represents. She represents a culture that says you don't matter because I'm better than you are. What, does, what, what do we learn about Penina? She can have children. She, 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 she is Elkanah's wife. She can have children. But she is in no way supportive of her co-wife. She is in no way sympathetic to her co-wife's problems. And understand, Hannah has a problem because she can't have children. You have to understand, and, and we've said this many, many times before when we've, when we've discussed Old Testament passages, the primary purpose of a woman in this day and time was to produce children, and more importantly, to produce sons. So if Hannah can't produce children, if she cannot produce sons, then she fails to fulfill her purpose. Now, somebody sitting in here saying, I don't care if I don't ever have children. God bless you. That's not her point. And this is what I want you to do. If children isn't high on the agenda of your life, put in what is high on the agenda of your life and ask yourself how you would feel if the thing that you wanted the most, you couldn't do. How would you feel if, if the thing that you perceived to be your purpose for existing was denied to you? Whatever that thing is, you know what it is, and, and you don't have to share with anybody what it is. Just ask yourself, how distraught would you be if you had a purpose and you knew it was your purpose, and this was the only thing that you wanted to do, and yet you couldn't do it. Now, you got that locked into your head? Add this to it. How would you feel if somebody is always reminding you that you can't do the thing that you want to do most of all? You got that locked in your head? Because I heard all y'all go, Ugh. Okay. You, you got that one locked in your head? Add this to it. How would you feel if you have to live with the person who's always telling you that you can't do what you want to do? Now, now, for somebody, this ain't a hard thing to do. 
because somebody lives in a house with somebody who's constantly telling you what you can't do, constantly ridiculing you because you fall short in a particular area, constantly taunting you because you are not fulfilling the purpose that you have for your life. It's a miserable existence. This is what Penina represents. It's more than just representation of, of culture or of worldliness. She's representative of the worst of culture, of the worst of worldliness, of the worst of people. Can you imagine them coming down to, 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 to offer the sacrifices every year and the family sitting around the table and the, and the meat being handed out? And can you imagine her loud talking Hannah as the meat's being passed out? See, I got so much more meat because I got all these children to feed. Go ahead and give Hannah her little bit of piece of meat. She ain't got as many people to feed as I got to feed. Elkanah, baby, can't you give me a little bit more meat? These children have grown so big now. Y'all know how, how folk do. And they do it with a smile on their faces. Let me let you in on a little something. If somebody is getting on your nerves, don't let them know that they're getting on your nerves. That ain't got nothing to do with Bible. You ain't going to find that in the notes when you get it. That's just Fred telling you something. Because once folk know that they can get on your nerves, you know what they're going to do? They're going to get on your nerve. They're going to dance on your nerve. Because it's the nature of Penina. It's the nature of culture to prevail at any and every cost. And she's making Hannah miserable. It says that Hannah couldn't eat because all she was doing was crying all the time. Well, in addition to Penina, you got Elkanah. Now, Elkanah's not a bad guy, but Elkanah has an exaggerated opinion of himself. Baby, what you crying about? Now, let's start with this. Elkanah knows what she's crying about. What he's doing is he's trying to be dismissive of her pain. Now, he's not doing it to be mean. Scripture says he loves her. But Elkanah represents family. Just as Penina represents culture, Elkanah represents family. And does anybody in here have somebody in your family who means you well, but just can't ever say what's right? Always putting their foot in their mouth. And then when you blow up, they're like, well, what did I say? What did I do? I don't understand. Elkanah is dismissive of Hannah's pain. 
and he tries to offer a substitute, and the substitute that he offers is himself. That baby, whether or not you have any children, I love you, and I'm worth more than 10 children. No! Okay, nothing wrong with the fact that you love me. I love you too. But no, it's not worth my purpose. Again, take it away from the children. Fill in the blank with your purpose. How would you feel if, if, if somebody who loved you came and said, don't worry about the fact that you haven't fulfilled your purpose. I love you. That should be all that matters. Don't worry about that. It's not that big a deal. Yes, it is. I'm always troubled by people who want to be dismissive of other folks' pain. Your pain is as real to you as my pain is to me. And it is never a helpful thing to be dismissive of somebody else's pain. You know, when people share with you their pain, you know what they want? They want understanding. They want compassion. They want someone who's empathetic. What they don't want is for somebody to tell them that the thing that's hurting them is unimportant. And that's what she got from her husband, from the man that she was married to. Your pain is unimportant. And I'm a good substitute for your pain. Family. That, that, that's what Elkanah represents. Well-intentioned, loving, but wrong. And then there's the third one. Skip over to verse... Nine. So Hannah ate. Then she pulled herself together, slipped away quietly, and entered the sanctuary. The priest Eli was on duty at the entrance to God's temple in the customary seat. Crushed in soul, Hannah prayed to God and cried and cried inconsolably. Then she made a vow. Oh, God of the angel armies, if you'll take a good hard look at my pain, if you'll quit neglecting me and go into action for me by giving me a son, I'll give him completely unreservedly to you. I'll set him apart for a life of holy discipline. It so happened that as she continued in prayer before God, Eli was watching her closely. Hannah was praying in her heart silently. Her lips moved, but no sound was heard. Eli jumped to the conclusion that she was drunk. He approached her and said, you're drunk. How long do you plan to keep this up? Sober up, woman. All right, so Penina represents culture and the world. Bad thing. 
Elkanah represents family, which tries to help, but falls short. Who does Eli represent? Eli represents the church. And in this case, he represents the church very poorly. He represents the church, but he completely misunderstands what's going on. And he draws an incorrect conclusion based on a lack of information. I've told y'all before, when, when, when I was a, a, a child, teenager, I would go to lunch with my mother and her best friend, uh, Mrs. Matt. They would go to Piccadilly uh, in Delmont Village just about every day. And, and, and I'd meet them for lunch quite a lot. And while we would sit there, when they ran out of other stuff to talk about, like their boss, uh, they, they would make up stories about the people coming into Piccadilly. You, you could see them when they walked in the door and as they grabbed their tray. Y'all been to Piccadilly and you grab your tray and start going down there. Well, Stoney, what you think about him? Uh, well, look like he's been working all morning and he's tired. You see how he's dragging his foot? He's tired. And, and, uh, and his wife didn't help him get dressed this morning because that shirt don't match them pants. <laughs> I don't, well, you know, he may not have a wife. I'm looking at his finger. I don't see no ring on his finger. So. And they would have an entire life history while he was going down picking out his salad and his starch and his meat. By the time he got to the end, they had his whole story. See, they didn't know him. They'd never seen him, never talked to him, but they had his whole life story figured out. This is Eli. Eli doesn't know Hannah. Eli doesn't know Hannah's story. You know what Eli sees? Eli sees a woman who's crying and whose mouth is moving, but no sound is coming out. And Eli has drawn a conclusion. He has made a judgment. He tells her, you drunk. I want you to notice, he does not ask her, have you been drinking? He does not say, do you need some help? He goes to her with an accusation. You're drunk. How long? Are you going to act like this? You need to sober up and get your life straight. Does that not sound like the church? Telling folk what they need to do without taking the time to understand what they're going through? You ain't got to be quiet. I've been in the church all my life. I can talk about the church. I know what church folk do. Church folk act like they know your story. They don't know your story. And here's the sad thing. They don't want to take the time to learn your story. If you try to tell them your story, they don't want to hear it. They've already made up their mind, would you? Child, you just need to pray. Prayer is a powerful thing. 
But sometimes you need more than just to pray. Child, you need to come to church more often. I believe every Christian ought to come to church. But sometimes your problem is bigger than just coming to church on Sunday. Sometimes you just need somebody who will listen to what you're dealing with. And here's something else. If you ain't got an answer, shut up. If you can't help, don't say nothing at all. Sometimes we make situations worse because we rely on pat answers that have nothing to do with what this person is going through. Sometimes we want to be as dismissive as Elkanah was. Elkanah said, baby, you got me. You don't need nothing else. And sometimes in the church, we say, baby, that ain't, wait till you have a problem. Once again, my problem is as real to me as your problem is to you. And it is not helpful to be dismissive of a person's problems, of a person's maladies, of a person's weaknesses, of a person's foibles, of a person's shortcomings. It is not helpful to do that. If somebody is wrong and they come to you and they tell you that they're wrong, they don't need you to add on to the fact that they're wrong. They need you to help them to understand that this is not your last day. This might not be a good day, but this is not your last day. And if you can't be helpful, just nod your head. Don't say nothing. And don't, don't do them things y'all do. <sighs> oh, Lord. You start looking up in the ceiling. You fold up your arms. I can't believe you did. You did that. That don't help nobody. Eli represents the church. Already ready to make a judgment. And don't know. And isn't it a shame? I, I don't have a problem with that. I think that's a good analysis. But isn't it a shame that we tend to think the worst of people? Church folk. That, 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 that we always go to the negative before the positive. You want to know what, you know, you know I, I have lamented the fact that church attendance is, is, is getting weaker and weaker generation after generation after generation. And we always want to point to the younger generation and we want to criticize them for not going to church, but nobody wants to look in the mirror and, and consider the fact that perhaps, just maybe, people don't want to be bothered with us because they know what they're going to get from us. 
The church is supposed to be an oasis of hope in a sea of despair. The church is supposed to be a place where people can come and feel comforted and feel nurtured and feel loved and feel respected. Once again, going back to what we said last week, I am not suggesting that the church should overlook wrong. When Jesus didn't condemn the woman that was caught in adultery, we talked about that last week, his last words to her were not, neither do I condemn you. His last words to her was, go and sin no more. I am not suggesting that the church should overlook sin. I'm not suggesting that the church should ignore sin. What I am suggesting is that the church should not be so judgmental of other folks' sin that we can't offer any help. Because when people come, that's what they need. They need help. If I fall in a hole, I don't need you standing around the hole telling me, did you know you fell in a hole? It's a big old hole, too, and it's deep. I don't know how you didn't see that hole when you fell in. I don't need, you know what I need you to do? I need you to help me get out of the hole. Now, once I'm out of the hole, if you want to talk to me about not going back into the hole, we can talk. But all that talk about me being in the hole while I'm in the hole, that's not helpful. So, Panina represents culture. Elkanah represents family. Eli represents the church. And Hannah finds no comfort from any of them. But do you know who she does find comfort from? She finds comfort from the Lord. What does the Lord, what, what, what does she say to the Lord? Go, go back up. I, I ran through it because I was trying to get to Eli. What happened? She says, oh God of the angel armies, if you'll take a good, hard look at my pain, if you'll quit neglecting me and go into action for me by giving me a son, I'll give him completely, unreservedly to you. I'll set him apart for a life of holy discipline. In this prayer, Hannah is very direct and she's very transparent, but she directs her concern to the only one who can help her. She takes her concern to God. Hannah is different from the others. We, we, we made mention of the fact that God had closed the womb on others. When, when Sarah's womb was closed, Abram went to God on Sarah's behalf. When uh, uh, Rachel could not have children, Jacob went to God. Low down, Jacob had enough sense to go to God on Rachel's behalf. In this case, Elkanah says, baby, you got me. You don't need nothing 
else. Why doesn't Elkanah, why doesn't her husband go on her behalf? He doesn't do it. But you know what Hannah says? I don't need Elkanah to go for me. I can talk to God for myself. There's a lesson in that, my brothers and sisters. I, I, I always appreciate the fact when people come and say, pray for me. But I try to remind them, you can pray for yourself. My prayers ain't got no special thing on it that, that gets them through and yours don't. The wonderful thing about Jesus is that Jesus tore the veil. Of the, we mentioned this in Sunday school teachers meeting last night. At the crucifixion, the veil of the temple was torn in two, which means that there's no longer a need for anybody to go to God for us. We can go for ourselves in the name of Jesus. Well, this, this happened thousands of years before Jesus, but Hannah said, if Elkanah ain't going to go for me, and if Penina ain't going to go for me, I'm going to go to God for myself. So she got up from the table, and she went into the tabernacle, and she went to God on her own. And she asks essentially for three things. I'm going to say this, and I, I'm, I'm ready to go eat. First, she asked God to respect her. Literally, the word respect means to take a second look. That, that, that's what the word respect, re means again, spect means see. See again. What she asks of God, how, how does she start? If you'll take a good, hard look at my pain. First thing she asked for is for God to respect her, to look upon her a second time. Second, she asked God to reconsider her situation. Now, the text made it clear that the fact that she could not have children was of God. God closed her womb. And so she's asking God, I know you did this. I respect the fact that you did this. I accept the fact that you did this. I want you to reconsider what you did. I want you to change it. I want you to reconsider my situation. I want you to reconsider the pain that I am in. And the third thing she asked for is resolution. Give me a son. That, that's resolution. I don't want you to just look at me a second time. And I don't want you to just reconsider my pain. I want you to fix my situation. I want you to make it so that I can have a child. And she has a promise on the back end. You give me a child. You give me a son. I'm going to give him back to you. Now, I want you to think about that. Because when she says that she will give him back, 
What she is saying is it's not about the son. It's about the purpose. The son is a byproduct of the purpose. The purpose is to be able to bear children. God, you have made it so that I can't fulfill my purpose. Look on me a second time because I want to fulfill my purpose. God, the fact that I can't fulfill my purpose leaves me in tremendous pain. It's not just a physical thing. It's an emotional thing. It's a mental thing. And anybody in here who's lived more than a minute knows that the mental and the emotional is sometimes worse than the physical. Used to hate it when my daddy would tell me he was disappointed in me. My daddy only hit me one time in my life. Backhand slap, knocked me clean off my feet. <laughs> but, but, but it was only one time. Do you know what he would do? He would look at you and his eyes would get squinty. And he'd say, I'm so disappointed in you. And, and, and then he'd say something like, you get out of my sight. I wish he would have just gone on and hit me and be done with it. The mental, the emotional, the guilt, the shame was worse than the physical. When he hit me, it hurt, but guess what? After five minutes, it was, it was over. Sometimes this thing would last all night into the next day. I'm enduring great pain. I want you to reconsider my situation, and I want you to take this pain away from me. My pain is because I can't fulfill my purpose. And I want resolution. I want you to fix it so that I can have children. Understand, the fact that, 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 that she could not bear children was more than just a failure to fulfill her purpose, but it carried with it a black mark from society. Society said if, if she can't bear children, then she's under the judgment of God. She must have committed some kind of grievous sin for God to have closed her womb. So can you imagine walking through the village and having all the women shoo-shooing around you as you walk by? There goes old childless Hannah. I wonder what she did. And like my mom and Miss Mac, they'd be making up stories about what she did so that she couldn't have children. It takes an emotional toll. I want you to look at me a second time. I want you to respect me. I want you to reconsider the pain that I'm enduring. And I want you to resolve my situation. It's not about the child. It's about the purpose. And here's how much I trust you. If you do this for me, because I know can't nobody else do this for me but you. If you give me what I ask for, I'll give him back. 
to you. He'll be yours entirely. In every situation, our relationship with God takes precedence over our relationship with anybody else. You should have talked to me about it. That's all right. I went past you. I went straight to God. It's a thoughtful prayer. And, and, and from our perspective, the desperation is in the fact that, that we see her as bargaining with God. And we are taught that you can't bargain with God. But you have to understand, she is coming from a different place and a different time and a different theological perspective. She doesn't see herself as bargaining with God. She sees herself as entering into covenant with God. You give this to me and I will give this to you. Yes. And, and the recognition is you are the one who is ultimately in charge of this situation. Getting back to, to your question. Do you remember the story of the Shunammite woman? In, in, in 1 Kings, and, 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 and Elijah tells her that she's going to have a child, and then she has the child, and then the child gets sick, and the child dies, and she has the child carried upstairs and put in the bed like he's asleep, and then she leaves. She doesn't tell her husband a thing. She goes right by her husband and says, I, I need some horses. I'm going somewhere. Doesn't talk to him, doesn't tell him the boy's dead. In fact, he sent the boy home. Y'all remember the story. The boy said he was in pain. He sent the boy home. Didn't come home with the boy. Sent the boy home to her. Well, take him to his mama. He ain't doing me no good out here. Take him to his mama. So mama said, that's all right. She went right past him. She got a servant and a horse. And she went looking for Elijah. And when she got to Elijah's servant, Elijah's servant goes out in front and says, can I do something for you? He said, you, you, you can't do nothing for me. And she walked right by him. And she wouldn't stop till she got to Elijah. Sometimes folk who even act like they love you can't do you no good. Sometimes you can't stop till you get to the one who can help you. Go to friends. Friends can't help you. Go to family. Family can't help you. Go to spouses. Spouses can't help you. Go to siblings. Siblings can't help you. Sometimes you got to go to the one who can help you. What is it we sing? I must tell Jesus all of my trials. I cannot bear these burdens alone. In my distress, he kindly will help me. He ever loves and cares for his own. And then the chorus says, I must tell Jesus. Why? Because only Jesus can help me. Jesus alone. Hannah said, I ain't talking to nobody about nothing but the Lord. And so she, she, she says, respect me, reconsider, resolve my situation. Eli, Eli comes in with all of his foolish talk about you being drunk. And, and she says, I ain't had nothing to drink. I said, I, I, I need something from the Lord. And I told the Lord what I needed. And then Eli got on the good foot. 
He said, God's going to give you what you asked for. So how does it end? Verse 18. Think well of me and pray for me, she said, and went her way. Then she ate heartily, her face radiant. Up before dawn, they worshiped God and returned home to Ramah. Elkanah slept with Hannah, his wife, and God began making the necessary arrangements in response to what she had asked. Before the year was out, Hannah had conceived and given birth to a son. She named him, she named him Samuel, explaining, I asked God for him. Last thing I want to say, Hannah's attitude got better, not because the situation was fixed, but because she took it to the Lord. Hannah, read what it says. It says she ate. Read what it says before. She couldn't eat nothing. Said that her face became radiant. What does it say before? She was crying inconsolably. Hannah got better not because she was pregnant. She got better because she took it to the Lord. A strong sign of our spiritual growth is when we can praise God before the blessing comes. Weeping may endure for the night. Joy comes in the morning. Now, let me tell you something about that, and we gone. Weeping may endure for the night. Joy comes in the morning. In the Hebrew culture, morning started at sundown. Did you know that? Morning didn't start with sunrise. Morning actually started at sunset. When, when Jesus was crucified, they had to hurry and get his body off of the cross and get him buried because Sabbath was going to begin. I know we typically think of Sabbath as being Saturday, but Sabbath actually began at sundown on Friday. What's my point? My point is, while it was still dark, joy was coming. Weeping endures for the night. Joy comes in the morning, but morning starts while it's still dark. My friend James Terrence would say, I said something right there. It starts while it's still, so you don't have to wait for the sun to come up to start praising God while you're still in the dark. Praise him. I love the Lord because he heard my cry and pitied my every groan. As long as I live and troubles rise, I'll hasten to his throne. Y'all have a good afternoon. May we stand together, please?
Shiloh feeds the hungry on a regular basis. Shiloh clothes the naked through its bargain center on a regular basis. Shiloh pays bills for people who are having a hard time and can't pay their bills on a regular basis. These are not drives that we have that last for two or three weeks out of the year. These are things that take place every day of the week uh, through our bargain center, through our charitable foundation, through our brotherhood and sisterhood, through our comfort and care ministry, through our prison ministry. Shiloh reaches out into the community on an everyday basis. You know, much is made of, of, of what we tried to do during the floods of 2016, where we took uh, a considerable amount of time and resources to help feed people on a daily basis as they tried to get back up on their feet. Uh, much is made about that, and, and we're grateful for all of those who did so much. Reverend Jennifer Jones led that effort and did a wonderful job with that. But the truth of the matter is, Shiloh feeds people every day. Shiloh clothes people every day. Shiloh uh, provides the necessary uh, things for people to have a higher quality of life on an everyday basis. Not to mention the scholarship program where $50,000 in scholarships uh, are, are given away every year to people. Not to mention the summer enrichment program where young people are given an opportunity to work in areas of their own interest uh, throughout the summer and Shiloh picks up the tab for that, not the business. We don't go to businesses and ask them to pay for it. We ask them to place the person and Shiloh pays for that. And we don't get a grant to do that. We do that through the membership. So when you ask me, what is it uh, that we have in store? It's, it's, it's simply looking at the needs that exist as they arise and then saying, well, what can we do to fix that need. I can't say what the need is going to be. We didn't know in 16 that there was going to be a massive flood. We didn't know in 16 that Alton Serling was going to be murdered in the way that he was by Baton Rouge police officers. We didn't know uh, many of the things that have happened that they were going to happen when they happened. But I thank God that I serve a congregation that is ready, willing, and able to respond to those needs as they arise without knowing what those needs might be.